In the last session, we saw how the Apostle Paul described the wrong ways to gain mastery over our sin nature. It's important to know about the things the world recommends for mastering the flesh, whether through legalism or mysticism or asceticism. If we're aware of those worldly methods, it'll help us to avoid them. In today's passage, Paul will begin to explain the right ways to gain mastery over our sin nature. Before we begin, we should ask why it's necessary for a believer in Christ to deal with the sin nature at all. When we put our faith in Christ and received his salvation, didn't that give us a new nature? The answer is, yes, believers do have a new spiritual nature that's capable of pleasing God. But we don't yet have our glorified bodies, so we still have the old fleshly nature which coexists with our new spiritual nature. In his earlier letter to the church in Rome, Paul described his own personal struggle with his old nature. He said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That's from Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Putting our trust in Christ for salvation does not neutralize or eradicate the old fleshly nature. Our old nature still exerts a powerful pull toward the old habit patterns that we've developed through years of living apart from God. Those old habits and behavior patterns can only be overruled through the work of the new nature as it submits to the Holy Spirit and obeys the Word of God. One Bible commentator expressed it this way, Don't be deceived into thinking that your old mind has been changed because you've been born into the family of God. The mind we have read about in Scripture is the mind we receive by physical birth. We possess within ourselves the same capacity for carnality, vanity, fleshly defilement, corruption, enmity, and attention to earthly material things that characterized us before we were born into God's family. And if that old mind is allowed to exercise itself, that mind will produce words and actions that are in keeping with the corruption, defilement, blindness, and deadness that God says characterizes the mind of the unsaved. However, it is biblical to understand that in the area of the mind, the Christian has two capacities, the capacity for divine things through the new mind and the capacity for carnal, fleshly, sinful, dead things through the old mind. And there is a constant, ceaseless, incessant, unrelenting opposition from the old mind to the new mind as it seeks to glorify God. So this tendency or pull of the fleshly nature in the believer is what the Apostle Paul will deal with in today's passage. 
The chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not part of the inspired text, and this is one example where the chapter division might imply that an entirely new subject is being introduced. In fact, however, we see from the very first word that what Paul will discuss in this chapter is directly connected to what he has said before. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul begins this section with the word, therefore, which indicates that what he's about to say is linked to what he already said in the previous verses. We could phrase it, therefore, since none of those worldly methods in chapter 2 had any value for mastering the flesh, you must seek help from a different direction. We saw in Colossians 1 verse 22 that Christ reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Jesus physically died and then was raised from the dead on the third day. But in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul made it clear that we were dead too. He said, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. As one commentator expressed it, whereas the Savior was actually dead and then raised to life, sinners are dead by reason of their sins, unable to please God by responding to his will and not caring to respond. The same power which wrought in Christ to raise him from the dead has brought life out of death to these believers. They have been raised together with Christ. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul introduced the pictures of circumcision and baptism, which, as we discussed previously, involves a believer's putting off of the flesh, as well as public identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul had said that believers were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So, having introduced the image of baptism, Paul applies that picture to the practical issue of how believers are to respond to worldly ways for attempting to control the indulgences of the flesh. In Colossians 2, verses 20 and 21, he had said, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to its decrees? In that passage, Paul pictured our death with Christ to show that we are no longer obligated to respond to the fleshly desires as we once did. Now we have a choice. We can consider ourselves dead to those desires. This was something which we were not able to do before our salvation. It's because of our death with Christ, as well as the power of God which raised us to new life, that we now have the ability to overrule or countermand our fleshly desires. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 contained the first part of the sequence when it said, You have died with Christ. And now here in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, we see the corresponding resurrection which completes the sequence. One Bible commentator has said, 
The argument is that there was such a union between Christ and his people that by virtue of his death, they become dead to sin, that by virtue of his resurrection, they rise to spiritual life, and that therefore, as Christ now lives in heaven, they should live for heaven and fix their affections there. Now, once again, as in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul used a Greek first-class conditional clause when he said, if you have been raised up with Christ. Because we know that our resurrection to new life in Christ is an accomplished fact, which we see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we could legitimately translate this, since you have been raised up with Christ. The last part of this verse is possible only because this condition is, in fact, true. So Paul is saying, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. The verb is a present active imperative in the second person plural. So Paul is issuing a command for all of his readers, including us, to be continually or habitually seeking the things above. The Greek word zeteo means to diligently pursue something in order to obtain it. This verse commands us to do this. Believers have the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit, of course, but we are to take this action. The Holy Spirit enables, but we must cooperate by doing what is commanded. What are these things above? How high do our thoughts need to reach? Paul is asking us to stretch ourselves to the limit by seeking the highest heights. We are to seek the place where Christ is. And Paul does not leave us in doubt about where Christ is right now. He reminds us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Upon his ascension, Christ sat down at the right hand of God, as it says in Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews echoes what Paul says here. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the things that Jesus is doing for us right now is explained in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, so Jesus is actively at work on our behalf, even from his place in heaven. How are we to keep seeking the things above? What's the best way to do this? The Greek word seeking can also mean to seek in order to find out by thinking. So in the next verse, Paul's going to tell us that this process involves the best use of our mind for controlling our thought life. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. When Paul says, set your mind, it is a translation of the single Greek verb, phroneo, which has the basic meaning to think, 
This verb is also a present active imperative in the second person plural. So Paul is telling the Colossians and all of us to continually keep on controlling our thoughts. One commentator has said, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. As in the previous verse, we are to take this action. The Holy Spirit enables, but we are responsible to do what is commanded. Sometimes it may seem as if our thoughts have a mind of their own, or that thoughts arise over which we have no control. But that is not true. Thoughts do not have a life of their own. Paul is telling us that our thoughts are not independent and uncontrollable. When fleshly thoughts rise to the surface, as they naturally will even for a believer, the first step is to recognize them. Once we become aware of them, we can evaluate them. If they are fleshly or unworthy thoughts, we need to resist them and replace them by refocusing our attention on things above. One commentator expressed it this way, From now on, the Christian will see everything in the light and against the background of eternity. He will no longer live as if this world was all that mattered. He will see this world against the background of the larger world of eternity. He will, for instance, put giving above getting, serving above ruling, forgiving above avenging. The Christian will see things not as they appear to the world, but as they appear to God. Now, before a person's salvation in Christ, not much thought was given to eternity or the things of God, and there was no enabling power to resist fleshly or worldly ideas. But now a believer is able to focus on things above rather than solely on earthly things. We can bring the priorities of heaven to our earthly lives, centering our focus on things that matter for eternity. Since Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he certainly has the power and authority to help us with anything we encounter in our daily lives. Jesus is seated there because he defeated the forces of evil that would try to influence us to indulge our fleshly passions. We see this in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. As one scholar expressed it, Paul was saying that life in this world will be better if it's lived by a power beyond this world, the power of the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ. Here Paul gave the command to set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And this assumes that it must be possible for a believer to do this. He would not command something that's not possible. This doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to do this. There may be times of struggle and failure, but there's forgiveness and restoration for the believer. The truth Paul presents here is that believers are responsible for managing their thought life. We must decide to do this. And this may involve overruling fleshly desires that are loudly clamoring for attention and which we've been in the habit of giving into for years and years. Paul goes on in Colossians 3 verse 3 to say, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
the word for at the beginning of this verse means that Paul is going to give an explanation for what he just commanded. The reason for refusing to respond to fleshly desires is that we are dead, and a dead person is no longer able to give in to sin. Here in this verse, Paul tells believers that they're dead, but also alive. Now, this may seem confusing and contradictory until we understand the specific sphere for both our death and our life. As one commentator expressed it, the contrast is between the believer's former state, in which they were alive to the world but dead to God, and their present state, in which they're dead to the world but alive to God. Now, before his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That's in John chapter 17, verse 15. Believers are to be in the world, but no longer ruled by worldly passions. We need to set our minds on things above where our life is hidden with Christ rather than allowing earthly, fleshly thoughts to dominate our minds and drag us down. As believers, we have the option of considering ourselves to be dead to worldly things. We are no longer obligated to obey or be ruled by worldly thoughts and passions. Our position is in Christ, who is the source of true life. Since we have not yet been completely removed from the world, we must live here in these fleshly bodies for a little while longer. But what really matters to us is hidden with Christ as he sits at God's right hand. The word hidden is the Greek word krypto, which sounds a lot like the modern English term crypto. It means to be kept securely out of sight. First of all, our true life is kept secure in Christ. As one commentator said, Your life is with the Redeemer, and He is in the presence of God, and thus nothing can reach it or take it away. It is not left with us or entrusted to our keeping, for then it might be lost, as we might lose a valuable jewel or it might be taken from us, or we might be defrauded out of it. But it is now laid up far out of our sight and far from the reach of all of our enemies. Our eternal life, therefore, is as secure as it could possibly be. The true condition of the Christian is that he is dead to this world, but that he has immortal life in view. And that is secure, being in the holy keeping of his Redeemer, now in the presence of God. From this it follows that he should regard himself as living for heaven. What a great way of saying it. Now, the other aspect of being hidden is that those around us in the world cannot see our new source of life. It's invisible to them, and they can't see any reason why we behave the way we do. As believers, most of the things that should attract us and delight us belong to heaven rather than to earth. Our choices and values and motives now come from a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly one. This may not make any sense to the watching world. In Colossians 3 verse 4, Paul goes on to say, 
When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The important point which Paul reminds us of here is that Christ is our life. As he said before, we are dead but alive, and Christ is our life. He is our creator, our redeemer, our advocate, and the one who holds us together so that we don't fly apart in a puff of smoke. He's the source of our new life, which gives us the desire and power to say no to fleshly indulgence and to follow his example in living a life that's pleasing to God. We need this reminder on a moment-by-moment basis. This verse also presents a contrast to the previous verse. In verse 3, Paul had described our present situation where the source of our spiritual life is hidden from those in the world. Here, verse 4 looks forward to that future time when Jesus comes for us and reveals believers in our glorified state. This brings up a question. When are believers glorified? I'd like to take a short detour here to talk about this issue. In one sense, believers are already glorified. In his high priestly prayer for his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus said, The glory which you have given me, I have given them. That's in John chapter 17, verse 22. The Apostle Paul affirmed this also when he wrote to the church in Rome that believers are already glorified. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Our glorification is an accomplished fact from God's perspective. But from our perspective, we're waiting for its manifestation on that day when Jesus appears and will bring us with him to the Father's house where he has been preparing a place for us, as it says in John chapter 14, verse 3. The reason that we must receive our glorified bodies on that day is because, as Paul told the Corinthian church, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. If we are to accompany Jesus to his Father's house, then we can't do it without our glorified bodies. Paul added to this explanation when he wrote to the Corinthians, It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 42 to 44. So having a glorified body is a requirement for accompanying Christ to the place he has prepared for us in the presence of the Father. But when will this happen? Again, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul revealed a mystery that had not been previously recorded in the Old Testament. Paul provided new information about the resurrection of church-age believers. At the moment when Jesus returns for his own, there will be living believers who will be resurrected, along with those church-age saints who have already died. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. So what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sounds very much like another passage in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. There he had said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17. These passages are referring to what's called the rapture of the church. This is the moment when Jesus will appear above the earth to gather the members of his body, the church, and to remove them from the earth. The church will depart with Christ to be with him in the Father's house. This is the moment in time when church-age believers will receive their glorified bodies. Now this is what Paul was referring to in several places in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 5 calls this the hope laid up for you in heaven. He also mentioned it in verse 22 as the time when Jesus will present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And according to the mystery that Paul shared in verse 27, believers have this hope of glory. The time when believers will receive their glorified body is a wonderful truth. But we shouldn't lose sight of Paul's main point in Colossians 3 verse 4 here, which is that Christ is our life now. It is only by living by the values and priorities of Christ in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have any hope of mastering the flesh. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul said, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. A more literal translation of this would be, Kill, therefore, your earthly members. Many English translations follow this literal wording. and Most use the phrase, put to death while the King James Version says, mortify your earthly members. The single Greek verb nekrao is translated put to death, and it can also mean to deprive something of its power. The verb form is an aorist active imperative, which is often used to express the urgent need to take immediate action. As in the previous verses, we are to take this action. The Holy Spirit enables us, but we are responsible to do what is commanded. What does it mean to put to death? One theologian expressed it this way, Death always means separation, never extinction. So putting to death the deeds of the body cannot mean eradicating them. That doesn't happen in this life. But it does mean separating myself from these things. Death to self is not extinction of the self-life, but separation from its power. 
So putting to death the deeds of the body does not mean that those deeds will no longer be part of our existence, but it can mean that they no longer need to be part of our experience. Now, the New American Standard Bible translated this verse to include the involvement of our minds as part of the process, similar to verse 2, which says to set your mind on the things above. So it says here that we are to consider our fleshly passions to be dead. If indeed we died, then we must treat the members of our body as dead and unable to respond. One pastor shared a story about two sisters who were in the habit of attending wild parties where they would engage in all kinds of worldly activities. But these sisters became Christians and found new life in Christ. Sometime later, they received an invitation to another of those raucous parties, and they sent their RSVP in these words, We regret that we cannot attend because we recently died. (laughs) Here in verse 5, Paul begins with the word therefore. So we could say, because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, we are to consider the members of our earthly bodies to be dead to the sins of the flesh. This is similar to the way Paul expressed the same idea in his earlier letter to the church in Rome. Paul's earlier teaching would have been circulated among the churches, so it's quite possible that Paul would have expected the Colossians to be familiar with this important truth. Similar to the wording we see in Colossians, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 say, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. One commentator expressed it this way. In his earlier letter, the apostle indicated a secret which greatly aids in reaching this objective, namely to reckon oneself to be dead to sin. Sin is illogical, irrational, inconceivable for a dead man. In principle, the sinful nature has been crucified with Christ, but there remains the necessity of acting on that fact by refusing to give sin any right to continue its mastery over the life that Christ has purchased by his precious blood. To bear this in mind, When sin, which is far from dead to us, seeks to allure us, is a big help toward achieving deliverance from sin's power. Now, when Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, we understand that the members of the body themselves are merely the instruments that are used to engage in fleshly activities. Our body parts can be used for evil purposes or to accomplish good things. As Paul said initially, it's our mindset which controls how our body parts will be used. Now that Paul has explained how believers are to deal with our fleshly passions, he goes on to mention several examples of some of the most common and devastating things that believers will be exposed to in this world. 
He lists immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, these are sensual sins, so let's take a quick look at them one by one. Immorality is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the English word pornography. It's a general or broad term that refers to any type of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. Different aspects of sexual activity were often included in the worship of pagan deities during their temple rituals, so porneia was very common in the culture of Paul's day. And as we look at our society today, we would probably conclude that porneia is just as common in our culture as it was in Paul's time. Next, Paul mentions impurity from the Greek word akatharsia, literally meaning the opposite of clean, either in a physical or moral sense. It can refer to any unnatural or filthy or unapproved sensual action, and it includes the idea of perversion. Next, Paul says passion, from the Greek word pathos. This is a general term that literally means a feeling which the mind suffers. It can have both good or bad connotations, and in the New Testament, it's used three times, all with a negative connotation. Here in Colossians, it means lustful desire that does not rest until it is satisfied. 1 Thessalonians 4.5 calls it lustful passion, and Romans 1.26 translates it degrading or dishonorable passion. As one scholar said, pathos is the soul's diseased condition out of which the various lusts spring. These are lusts that dishonor those who indulge in them. Next, Paul mentions evil desire. This is the Greek word epithumia, which means an insatiable longing for something that is forbidden. It is a lust to satisfy fleshly appetites and carnal desires. So the list that Paul is giving here seems to be moving from the more specific sensual actions to the more general sensual attitudes. Evil desire goes way beyond actions to include the evil thoughts or intentions of the mind. Paul then mentions greed, pleonexia, which is a compound word from pleon, which means more or greater, and echo, to have. So it literally means to have more of anything, in either a good or a bad sense. It has a wider and more intense meaning than the word greed. It denotes a more radical disposition to have more. As someone said, it's a grasping selfishness that has grown into a passion. In the context here, it seems to carry the thought of never having enough sensual indulgence. The sensual desires of the flesh are insatiable, and Paul goes even further by saying that they amount to idolatry. They can be worshipped and served in the place which God should hold in our lives. One commentator expressed it this way, It's hard to resist the suggestion that covetousness is linked here with sexual immorality and so speaks of the greed which seeks its satisfaction in what is not lawful. This sin is idolatrous, for it concentrates the whole being upon something other than God. 
it's characteristic of sexual indulgence that it leads to an unhealthy and ultimately perverted obsession. This can be seen not only on an individual level, but also in a community. When godliness is rejected and the lust of the flesh is encouraged, it is not long before sex is worshipped instead of God. Now, as we come to the end of this list of sensual sins, we need to remember what Paul said that we're to do with them. He told us that we must consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to all of these fleshly sins and sensual attitudes. We are to fully separate from them through a radical shift in our mental focus and our behavior. In the next two verses, Paul will give a powerful reason for what he has just said. In Colossians 3, verses 6 and 7, he says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Here, Paul provides an important motivation for mastering our fleshly nature. He says that the sensual sins listed in the last verse, and others like them, are bringing the wrath of God upon those who engage in them. Wrath, the Greek term orge, is the righteous indignation or anger of God, which manifests itself in punishment for sin. To partake in these sins invites the wrath of God. Because the world ignores God and loves this kind of sensual lifestyle, people who continue in these sins are simply compounding their condemnation. One way in which the wrath of God can be evident in this life is that God may simply allow people to continue living in their sinful lifestyle. As it says in Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 32, He gives them over to their self-destructive ways and sadly allows them to destroy themselves. Ultimately, however, God's wrath and judgment will fall on all the sons of disobedience. A quick survey shows that God's wrath is predicted almost a dozen times in the Gospels, over 20 times in the New Testament epistles, and throughout the book of Revelation. There will be no escape for unbelievers from God's ultimate wrath to come. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church that God rescues believers from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. And as Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 10, believers are meant to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. But participating in the sensual sins that Paul listed here will have exactly the opposite effect. God hates these sins, and he's compelled to judge, condemn, and punish people for them, even if they're believers. So even though a believer will ultimately be rescued from the wrath to come, sin always has consequences. The last verse of this chapter contains a clear warning, which we'll discuss in context when we get to it. But that warning is a general principle, which applies here to believers who participate in the sensual sins. In Colossians 3 verse 25, Paul writes, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. 
Now this goes for believers as well as for unbelievers. Sinful attitudes and behaviors will incur a judgment from God, and he shows no partiality. This is a powerful motivation for believers to reject and avoid the sensual sins and the pull of our old nature toward fleshly indulgence in any area of life. In verse 7, Paul gives a second reason for the Colossian believers and us to avoid the sins of the flesh. He reminds them that they themselves were once enslaved to those sins in their life before salvation. As Paul had said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So since God rescued them out of that pitiful condition, it would make no sense to return to that empty and destructive way of life. They left that kind of life behind, and they should be determined never to revisit it. One commentator explained it this way, Do believers in local churches commit such sins? Unfortunately, they sometimes do. Each of the New Testament epistles sent to local churches makes mention of these sins and warns against them. I'm reminded of a pastor who preached a series of sermons against the sins of the saints. A member of his congregation challenged him one day, saying that it would be better if the pastor preached those messages to the lost. The church member said, Sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the lives of other people. And the pastor replied, Yes, it's worse. So, after warning believers about sensual sins in verses 5 through 7, Paul is now going to list examples of what we might call relational sins. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Paul begins this verse with an emphatic contrast, but now. He is saying, yes, you once lived in those sins, but now you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you now have the ability to put aside all of these things. The Greek verb translated, put them aside, is apatithemi, which means to put off and lay aside as when removing soiled clothing. Once again, we are to take this action. The Holy Spirit will enable us, but we are responsible to do what is commanded. This picture of changing one's clothing may imply that it would be an easy task to put all of these things aside, but that is not the case. All of these things are deeply ingrained in our fleshly nature, so it may require deliberate and sometimes painful decisions on our part through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to keep these things from rearing their ugly heads These so-called relational sins involve both our attitudes and our actions. First, Paul lists anger. This is the Greek word orge, which we saw in verse 6, where it was used for the righteous indignation or anger of God towards sin. But here in the present context, it is not being applied to a righteous God, but to flawed human beings. 
Here it indicates a fleshly attitude of indignation, which has a hint of entitlement and bitterness over unmet selfish expectations. Next, Paul mentions wrath. The Greek word thumos is a sudden and passionate outburst of anger. One language expert said it refers to a burning anger which flares up and burns with the intensity of a fire. Believers are called to exercise self-control and not to allow themselves to give vent to these kinds of angry impulses when they rise to the surface. Paul mentions malice, kakia, which is an evil habit of mind or an attitude of ill will that's determined to do harm to other people. As one person said, if we have malice towards someone, we will be sad when he is successful and will rejoice when he has trouble. Next, Paul says slander, the Greek word blasphemia. This is the habit of verbally abusing someone. It is language that's intended to damage someone's reputation by spreading evil reports. Some synonyms might include backbiting, reviling, defaming, insulting others, or gossiping about others. Finally, in verse 8, Paul mentions abusive speech. This is the Greek word eiskanologia, which literally means to say filthy things. It's used in this verse to mean that people who have been redeemed by Christ should never allow shameful or filthy words to come out of their mouth. A Christian ought to use a different vocabulary than he used in his life before salvation. We need to think before we speak and bridle the tongue. Now Paul is going to add one more sin to this list in verse 9. Colossians 3 verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Do not lie, the Greek word pseudomai, is a command in the present tense which could be translated, Stop being in the habit of lying to one another. It means to speak falsely or deceitfully. So here Paul includes really any misrepresentation of the truth. Anything that's intended to deceive someone in order to gain something for ourselves or to say something that makes us look better than we are. Unfortunately, this is one of the easiest indulgences of the flesh for a believer to fall into. It's so ingrained in our nature and we've practiced it for so long that it's become a habitual way of speaking to others. If we add lying to the list here, then there are six examples of relational sins which Paul tells us to lay aside. In verse 8, Paul had used the verb apatithemi, which means to put off and lay aside. But here in verse 9, the same phrase, lay aside, is the way that the creators of the New American Standard Bible chose to render an even more powerful word. This is actually the same word Paul had used in Colossians 2 verse 15 when he said that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display of them. The Greek word apekduomai is a double compound word created by combining the words apaduo and ekduo, and Paul had used this term to express how completely the rulers and authorities had been stripped of their power. 
So here he uses the same word to express how completely believers should strip their old nature of its power over them. When Paul says the old self with its evil practices, he's referring to the fleshly sinful nature that he's been talking about throughout this entire section. This is a powerful image of the believer conquering or mastering the habits and passions of the old self. For the word old, he used the Greek term palios, which means ancient or worn by use and much the worse for wear. The fact is, though, that laying aside the old self is really only half of the picture. The other part of the process is described in the next verse. In Colossians 3, verse 10, he says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Not only are we to put off the old self, here Paul says we also need to put on the new self. This is the principle of replacement. To put on is the Greek word and duo, which literally means to go under, to be plunged into, or to sink into something. It was commonly used in Paul's day for the act of putting on clothing, but the word itself hints at something similar to what happens during believer's baptism. Now, there are two different Greek words for new. One is kainos, which means new in kind or character. The other word is neos, which means new in time, or fresh or young. Now here Paul used the word neos, which he places in direct contrast to the old, ancient, well-worn self. The new self is the one that was recently received at the moment of salvation. It's a believer's fresh new life that was hidden with Christ in God. Now, Paul says here that this new life is itself in the process of being continually refreshed. The phrase being renewed is the Greek word anakainao, which has that second Greek word for new as its root. So Paul is using both of the Greek words for new to show that our new life is both new in time, fresh and unspoiled, but also new in quality or character. As one language expert said, Paul adds the meaning of kainos to that of neos. It is a continual refreshment, kainos, of the new man, neos. Now, as we've seen previously in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 2, verse 2, this whole process of continuous renewal and spiritual growth involves increasing in true knowledge. The single Greek word translated here as true knowledge, epignosis, is the same word that was used in those earlier verses, and we recall that it means much more than simply knowing something. It carries the idea of thoroughly understanding, of recognizing the importance, of accepting and applying something personally in our lives. Believers grow in this kind of knowledge through the ministry of the Word of God. As we read the Bible and hear sound biblical teaching, the indwelling Holy Spirit applies that knowledge to our lives. 
As one commentator said, the Word of God is the food that fuels the growth of the new self. How believers grow depends on how much knowledge they put into practice in their lives. So now Paul adds here that as we grow spiritually, then we also become more like our Creator. As he says in this verse, the believer is gradually conformed to the image of the one who created him. This is similar to what Paul had written earlier to the church in Rome when he said, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8 verse 29. Our spiritual growth leads to increasing Christ-likeness, and one commentator expressed it this way, The image of God which the new man bears from the beginning in a rudimentary form and which is continually imprinting itself more deeply upon him has for its practical feature holiness. This is the goal of all our putting off of the old and putting on the new. For this purpose Christ has come and died and lives For this purpose, the Spirit of God dwells in us. This is the immortal hope with which we may encourage our souls in our often weary struggles, that our poor sinful natures may be transformed into that wondrous likeness. By way of summary here, in this session we've seen why it's necessary for a believer in Christ to deal with his sin nature. Putting our trust in Christ for salvation did not neutralize our old fleshly nature. That old nature still exerts a powerful pull toward sinful habit patterns. But since we have been raised up with Christ, we now have the ability to say no to the old attitudes and behaviors, and we can seek to use the things above as our new pattern for living. God commands us to set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things. So believers are responsible before God for managing their thought life. By considering ourselves to be dead to the sins of the flesh, we separate ourselves from them and are no longer obligated to give in to them. Paul listed several examples of sensual sins which bring the wrath of God on those who participate in them. And he also listed examples of relational sins that result from fleshly attitudes and ways of speaking to others. Even though it may be painful and difficult at times, we now have the power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to separate from the sins which are so deeply ingrained in our fleshly nature. Using the principle of replacement, we can put off the old ways and put on the new ways which please God. This process of continuous renewal and spiritual growth involves increasing our knowledge of who God is and how we can be conformed to his image by living according to the principles of his word.